How often do you think about the Roman Empire? Um, recently, this question has taken over the internet. Uh, Forbes magazine says that uh, the question, how often do you think about the Roman Empire, and hashtag Roman Empire has been viewed billions of times in the last seven days. And for thousands of years, millions of people have marveled at the Roman Empire. And the capital city of the Roman Empire is the city of Rome. Uh, throughout history, people have called Rome, the Caput, Caput Mundi, which in Latin means the capital of the world. It was the center. Rome was the center of civilization, center of commerce, center of trade, center, center of governance, center of culture, center of the arts. It had the Colosseum, the gladiators. It had architecture. One historian said when Rome moved to Penn, the entire world moved with it observing that decisions made in Rome were felt all around the world. And there, in the city of Rome, the most important city, the most significant city in the world at the time, was a seemingly insignificant church. Romans 1.7, the Apostle Paul says, to all who were in Rome, loved by God. Now, the Roman church may not have been loved by the city of Rome or loved by the world, but Paul knew that they were definitely loved by God, called as saints, Grace to you in peace from our God and Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And in these verses, Romans 1, 8 through 17, we see Paul's model for gospel ministry. We see how he went about doing ministry in a lost and broken world. And if I had to sum up his model for ministry, I would say that Paul loved people deeply and was not ashamed of the gospel. Paul loved people deeply and was not ashamed of the gospel. This simple idea is worthy of much consideration and imitation, whether you are an overseas missionary or you're a stay-at-home mom. Uh, this is at the very heart of living the Christian life and representing Christ well, that we are to love people deeply and not be ashamed of the gospel. These two attitudes are designed to work together. We really are to love people deeply and not be ashamed of Christ. And this morning, I want to look at both of these attitudes. Attitude number one is to love people deeply. The Apostle Paul thought of gospel ministry as a labor of love. It wasn't just a task. It wasn't just a mission. It is a task. It was, a, or it is a mission. But it's more than that. It is a labor of love. And we all agree that we should love people deeply. I've never met a person who says, no, we shouldn't love people deeply. Nobody says that. We all agree that we should love people deeply. The problem is that loving people deeply is costly. It's very difficult to do. And it's difficult to do because we're selfish. We're self-centered. We're sinful. We're busy. We have a lot of things going on in our lives. And so it's very difficult to love people deeply. What we want is we want other people to meet our needs. We want people to conform to our preferences. Several months ago, I was looking for a car online, and pretty soon I was being bombarded by every car company under the sun. And one company piqued my interest. They said, do you want to design a car that is just right for you? And I said, yeah, I do. Let's just give it a shot. Let's see what happens. And so I started to customize this, this car, I, I, and I had no idea there, there were this many options. You could pick all of the colors. Uh, you could pick where the chargers would go. You could pick where the cameras would, would go. They had hundreds of options and features. And one of the, one of the features or one of the tools was a high maintenance to low maintenance feature. So the car company was saying, these cars are lower maintenance, these cars are higher maintenance. And, and so I'm working through this whole list, customizing every detail of the car. And as I was shopping, I thought to myself, 
wouldn't it, wouldn't it be nice to shop for people this way? I mean, wouldn't it be kind of a nice thing if you could just kind of customize people to your preferences? Wouldn't it be nice to know if from the very beginning, if someone was going to be high maintenance or low maintenance? Wouldn't it be nice to know, hey, are they going to slander you or not? Are they going to be your friend or not? Are they going to do what you want you, are you, are they going to do what you want them to do or not? Are they going to be a good friend in times of testing or not? It would be really nice if you could do that. But you can't do that, obviously. It was kind of funny. It was kind of funny because I got done designing the car that was just right for me. And I didn't buy it because it was $100,000 or so. And uh, by the time I had customized every, every feature. But a couple weeks later, I got an email asking, am I still interested in this car, in my dream car? And I said, I'll take a look at it. I just want to see it again. And, and I didn't even like it. Two weeks went by. And I was like, who picked these colors? What was I thinking at the time? And I became keenly aware that I don't even like my own preferences over time. And I think the same thing is true for you, too. Like, you'll look, and you'll say, I really like that, but now I'm different, and I'm different, and I'm different. And the reason I bring this up is that much of the time, when we think about our relationships with people, we're thinking about what people should be doing for us. We're thinking about, are people, are people conforming to our desires? Are they doing what we want them to do? But see, the goal is not, it's not for people to conform to us. The goal is not that people should conform to our desires. The goal is to love people deeply from the, from the heart for their good and the glory of Christ. That's the goal, is that you, you would love people deeply from the heart for their good and the glory of Christ. Now, where do we see Paul's love for the Roman church? Two places. First, we see it. We see it in the fact that Paul constantly prayed for the Roman church. Verse 8, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. Paul constantly prayed for the Roman saints. And this is a great way to express your love for people. It is a wonderful thing to pray for other people, to thank God for other people. And the Apostle Paul, he made a connection in his mind between the grace of God and what was happening in Rome. Look back at verse 8. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ, for all of you, because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. He doesn't just say, I thank God that you guys are awesome. That's not what he says. The connection he makes in his mind is that there's no way to explain what was happening in Rome apart from the grace of God. The, the transformation of these saints' lives, that they were distant from God, far from God, re rebellious against God, dead in their sins, but they were made alive by the grace of God. Their lives were transformed, and when Paul saw when, when Paul saw their, their lives, he says, this is evidence of God's grace. And so he says, I thank my God for what he has done in your life. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. Churches are often newsworthy because of scandal, because of division, because they do weird stuff. I remember years ago when we first started the church, I remember hearing about one church in Colorado. They were giving out free beer to first-time visitors to their church. Bottles of beer. To, if you're new to church, we'll give you a bottle of beer. And they were advertising it everywhere. And I thought, that's just weird. I mean, they got in the news, but it's just weird. Churches are in the news all the time. But rarely are they in the news because of the faith of their people. Rarely. Are they in the news because, the, because people's lives are being turned upside down? Look what he says in verse 8. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because news of your faith is being reported in all the world. Everyone, everyone was hearing about how God was changing the lives of these Roman people. 
And you know, you know, I talk to people all the time who will say something like this. They'll say, Dan, um, I really want to grow in my prayer life. I know I need to grow in my prayer life, and I don't really know what to pray about. I can pray for like three minutes, and then I run out of uh, content. I don't know what to keep praying about. And so if you're, if you're looking to grow in your prayer life, this is a wonderful place to start. What do you do? Pray for people. Start thanking God for people. Start thanking God for our church. Start thanking God for other gospel preaching churches. Start thanking God for your friends. Thank God. Pray. Labor in prayer for people, thanking God for people. It is so natural to take people for granted. This is human nature. We just take everybody for for granted. And it is so natural to criticize people, to find what is wrong with people. And if Paul, the Apostle Paul, wanted to criticize the Roman church, he could have done it. Like, he, he, he could have picked them apart. I'm sure of it. But that's not how he begins the letter. He begins the letter by saying, no, I've been, I have been thanking God for you. I'm grateful to God for your lives. And I think this is incredible because Paul did not go to Rome. Like, he didn't plant the church in Rome. He had never been to Rome. He didn't know most of the people in Rome. But his heart for them was growing and changing. One scholar said, you pray for who you love, and over time you love who you pray for. You pray for who you love, and over time, you, you love who you pray for. We naturally are going to pray for the people we're closest with. But see, Paul, he prayed for these people that he barely knew. And over the course of time, his heart grew towards those people. And notice, there's not one ounce of competition in, in his heart towards them. No competition at all. He doesn't say, you know what, uh, your church is pretty good. It's not as good as the churches that I planted, you know, because I planted these other churches and they're really great. Your church wasn't planted by me, so it's like not quite as good. No competition, no criticism. There's a place for criticism, but this is not where Paul is at. He's just thanking God. He is thanking God for the Roman church. So I want to encourage you, if you're not thanking God for people, you, you ought to do that. You ought to spend time thanking God for people. One question for you to consider is, does your prayer life reflect a deep love for people? Does your prayer life reflect a deep love for people? Okay, where else do we see the love of Paul for the Roman saints, the Roman church? Well, it's in the fact that Paul wanted to go see them. So he prayed for them all the time, and then he wanted to go see them. He says in verse 9, God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his son, that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last, succeed in coming to you. I love this. He's saying, you know, guys, I've been praying and asking God to go to Rome for a long time, and God keeps telling me no. That's why I haven't gone. I've tried, but I haven't been able to succeed because it hasn't been in God's will. So I'm just asking God, God, will you please let me go to Rome? He wanted to go see them. Now, the cynical part of me says, of course, of course, Paul, you want to go to Rome. Of course, of course, you're hoping that God is calling you to Rome, kind of like I'm hoping God is calling me to be a pastor in Hawaii. Like I just, I'm really, may, I feel God is leading me to go live in Hawaii on the beach and be, be a minister to the beach bums or whatever. I mean, it's like, who wouldn't want to go to Rome? This is a, a great city. But he doesn't say, I, I want to go to Rome so I can eat the pizza or go to the Colosseum or watch the gladiators fight. That's not what he says. Look, look why he wants to go to Rome. Think about this. He's going to travel. He's going to travel hundreds and hundreds of miles. It would take him so long to get there. Why does he want to go there? Verse 11. For I want very much to see you. Why? So that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. 
He says, I want to see you to be a blessing to you. I want to see you to build you up. I, I love this because this demonstrates a deep humility in Paul's life. Uh, he loved them and he saw himself as a servant of these people. He, he says, I am here for you. I am here for you. Imagine if that's how we showed up everywhere, everywhere we went, to church, to work, to school, in our homes. Imagine if that was our attitude. We just said, why am I here? I'm here for you. I'm here for your good. I'm here to be a blessing to you. I'm here to strengthen you. And you also see his humility in verse 12. He says, that is to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. He doesn't say, you know what, you guys need me, uh, but I don't need you. He doesn't say that. He, he doesn't say, you guys can learn from me, but I can't really learn much from you. That's not what he says at all. He, he says, I, I want to be mutually encouraged. I want to strengthen you. And, and he says, and I want to be strengthened by you. It takes a real, a real deep humility for the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, arguably the greatest Christian, arguably the greatest Christian who ever lived, to, to look at this Roman church and say, I want to be encouraged by you. You have something to offer me. You have something to offer me. Sometimes after people have been walking with Christ for a long time, uh, you can look at people who are new in their faith or young in their faith, and you, you wouldn't say this, but you can have an attitude like, I don't really have much to learn from you. You can't really do much for me. Like, I know a hundred times more than you do. What are you going to teach me? But Paul didn't have that attitude at all. He goes, verse 12, that is to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I, I have something to give and I have something to receive. And we ought to view each other that way. We ought to, we ought to view our, ourselves as, as belonging to each other needing each other for encouragement and to, to encourage and to be encouraged. And so he loves them. He has a deep humility and a deep love for the saints. He demonstrates it by praying and by desiring to be with them. He loves them. And when it comes to gospel ministry, we must have the truth. The truth, if we, have, if we do not have the truth, we have nothing. We have nothing. We must have the truth. And we must have a genuine love. A genuine love for people it is the secret sauce in ministry. Right? A lot of times people wonder about the programs. Uh, what, what, what programs do you have? What do you have to offer people? What is your strategy? And I think it's good to have strategy. It's good to have programs. It's a, we, we need those things in the life of the church. But if we do not have a genuine love for people, it's all for naught. It's, we're wasting our time. We, we ought to have a genuine love. We, we, we ought to have a genuine concern for people as we live our lives. Attitude number two is do not be ashamed of the gospel. Love people deeply and do not be ashamed of the gospel. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Another, another way to say this is that Paul gloried in the gospel. Not only was he not ashamed, he loved the gospel. I love that he loved the gospel. I love that he boasted in the gospel. He thought, he thought it's the greatest thing in the whole world. It's the greatest message in the whole world world. Now you might look at this and say, well, of course the Apostle Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. He saw Christ and he was a missionary. He saw all these, all these incredible things. Of course he's not ashamed of the gospel, but, but the gospel message, it cost the Apostle Paul a lot. He suffered dearly for the gospel of grace. And see, as Christians, whether you are an overseas missionary, you're a pastor, vocational ministry, or you're just living the Christian life, regardless of where you're at in your walk with, with the Lord. If you're a Christian, 
We are not to be ashamed of Christ. We are not to be ashamed of the gospel. When Christians are ashamed of the gospel, the whole Christian life goes haywire. It goes sideways. Uh, it, we lose our foundation. We lose our footing. Even if, even if you're not out preaching the gospel, if you're just living the Christian life, your whole life will go sideways if you're ashamed of the gospel. Now, why is this? Well, let me give you three quick truths about the gospel that we see in this passage. The first is that the gospel shaped Paul's identity. The gospel shaped Paul's identity. The gospel shapes our identity in a hundred different ways, but there's a unique way in verse 14. He says, I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. When Paul thought about his life, when he thought about his ministry, when he thought about just living in the world, he says, I am obligated to both Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. The word obligated in verse 14 means indebted. You could translate this, I am a debtor to the world. I am a debtor. I am in debt. Not to God. He doesn't say I am in debt to God. He says I am a debtor to the Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Now what does that mean to be indebted to the Greeks, to the barbarians, to the wise, to the foolish, to everyone? What does that even mean? Two ways to be indebted. Two ways to be in debt. Number one, is that you borrow money from a bank or someone. You, you borrow money, $100,000 from a bank, or you borrow money from a person. You are in debt to that person until you repay them what they have given you, until you, get, until you re repay that $100,000. But Paul is not indebted to the world in that sense, as if Paul has taken something from the world that he has to pay back. He's not indebted in that sense. But there's a set, second way to be in debt. If someone gave you a million dollars, so someone gives you one million dollars and says, you were to take this one million dollars and give it to these 10 people, $100,000 to these 10 people, and you accept that task, you say, yes, million dollars, I'm gonna go give it to these 10 people. You would be in debt to those people until you give them that $100 or the $100,000. You would be in debt. Until you, until you fulfilled that responsibility to give them $100,000. And in this sense, the Apostle Paul says, I am a debtor to the world. He says, God has given me the gospel to give to the world. God has entrusted me with the gospel to give to the world. And this attitude is so powerful. I am a debtor to the world. See, Paul understood the mission of God in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, we see the mission statement. You could, some people call this the mission statement of the Apostle Paul. In verse 5, he says, Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles. Uh, this is what Paul understood the purpose of the gospel to be. We talked about this briefly last week. But the purpose of the gospel in verse 5 is that the whole world would receive grace for the glory of Christ. The whole world would receive grace. What is the purpose of the gospel? That the whole world would receive grace for the glory of Christ. Where do we see this? In verse five, you see the phrase, among all the Gentiles, all the people of the world. Sin is under the, or the whole world is under the curse of sin. And what Christ has done through his life, death, and resurrection, the, the fact that he went to the cross and died in our place, died in the place of sinners, means that all nations, God is calling all nations to believe in Christ, to repent and believe the gospel, to have their lives changed, to have their sins forgiven, to be born again, to be made children of God, to be reconciled back to God through the cross, that the message of the gospel 
is for our city. It's for me, it's for our city, it's for our state, it's for our country, and it's for the whole world. Now, I say, when I say that the purpose wrapped up in verse 5 is that the whole world would receive grace for the glory of God, it starts by receiving grace. It starts by receiving grace in verse 5. Through him we have received grace. Now, if you look at verse 5, you say, well, isn't Paul talking about receiving grace to be an apostle? Yes, that's definite, definitely what he's talking about. But see, there's, there's grace that Paul received before he was called to be an apostle. And that was the salvation of his soul. And so the grace that saves is the grace that sends. If you've received the grace to save your soul, then that same grace, it moves us into the world. The, the, that grace does not say, okay, now I'm going to go live my own life, do whatever I want to do. No, 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 no way. That grace, the grace that saves us, it sends us into the world to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the whole world, what's the purpose of the gospel? The whole world would receive grace to the glory of Christ. Look back at verse 5. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. That means that people would come to faith in Christ for the sake of his name so that Christ would be praised and worshiped throughout the entire world. That's the goal of God eventually, is that the gospel gets to the ends of the earth and that the whole world would worship the resurrected Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, I am a debtor. I am a debtor to the world. I've given my life to the task of seeing people come to faith in Christ that they might know and love and worship Jesus Christ. And this attitude that I am a debtor it really changes the way that you think about people. It changes the way you move in, in the world and relate to other people. Let me give you uh, just one example of this. This week, uh, I listened to a woman uh, give the case for why it should be legal to chemically castrate children and to make them sterile, to sterilize children. And it's called gender-affirming care. So I, I listened to the case and this is the starting point of the case. Why should this be legal for minors to go through, quote, gender-affirming care, which is castration and sterilization? And this is, this is the founda foundational argument. So when babies are born, the doctor looks at them, and they make a guess about whether the baby is a boy or girl. Based on what they look like, most, based on what they look like, most of the time, that guess is 100% correct. There are no issues whatsoever. But sometimes the doctor is wrong. The doctor makes an incorrect guess. When a doctor makes a correct guess, that person is called cisgender. When a doctor's guess is wrong, that's when they are transgendered. Now, when I read this, and then I continued to read it and think about what, what was being said, my heart uh, was just, I was so angry. <laughs> and I... Uh, I just almost couldn't even process it. I'm like, what are you talking about? A doctor looks at a baby born and says, I'm just going to make a guess? Is this, what, is this what's happening? And I was, I was so angry for two reasons. The first reason is that it's just paganistic nonsense. It's not true. That's not what happens. And it ruins countless lives. The second reason I was angry is because this is part of a lesson taught to first grade kids in school. And you can see all these kids, and they're learning from this person in a position of authority, lies. And you think, what in the world is going on? And so my heart was very frustrated. 
And then I thought about this verse. Verse 14. I am obligated both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. And I think, what, what debt do I owe that teacher? Do I owe that teacher my scorn? Do I owe that teacher, that teacher my hatred? What debt do I owe that teacher? The answer, if I owe her anything, I owe her a debt of grace. Freely I have received and freely I am to give. The grace of telling her what God has done for her in Christ. Now, certainly should we resist these ideas? Paul says that we demolish every argument set up against the knowledge of God. Certainly we must resist these ideas and reject these ideas for the good of humanity. But, it, but this attitude that I'm a debtor, I am, fundamentally, I am a debtor to others. And I owe a debt of grace. It shapes the posture of our heart as we represent Christ in the world. And so, in verse 14, we see how this truth, the truth of the gospel, shapes Paul's identity. Next, we see how the gospel shaped Paul's strategy. He had a strategy that when he thought about how am I going to go about reaching the world, impacting the world for Christ, he has a strategy. Verse 15, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This is his strategy. Paul, in many ways, he was a one-trick pony. What, what's Paul going to talk about? He's going to talk about the gospel. If we invited the Apostle Paul to come teach our church, we said, Paul, can you please come uh, teach at Walnut Creek Church? That would be pretty awesome, by the way, that we would love that. And what would he teach on? He would teach proclaiming the gospel. He would proclaim the gospel of grace. And you think to yourself, well, isn't the Roman church already made up of believers? Certainly. It certainly is made up of believers. I, I've had so many people ask us over the years, they say, Dan, um, why does Walnut Creek keep teaching the gospel at church? We already know the gospel. Why do we keep proclaiming the cross of Christ? And the reason is because you need to hear the gospel. That's why we keep preaching the gospel. This is Paul's strategy. He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Does this include more than the church? Certainly, but it certainly includes the church in Rome. The right attitude is to say, I need to hear the gospel today. I need to believe the gospel today. I need to be reminded of the gospel. I need to apply the gospel. I need to preach the gospel to the world, and I need to preach the gospel to myself. We need to be reminded of the good news of the gospel time and time and time again. Did Paul ever preach more than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? Certainly, but everything Paul taught is simply the application of the gospel to the Christian life built on the gospel of grace. This is his strategy, and this is what we want our strategy to be as a church, where Christ is at the center of everything we do, that everything is built on the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. And number three, number three, the, we see in verse 16 that God shaped Paul, or the gospel shaped Paul's confidence. So not only did the gospel shape his identity, the gospel shaped his strategy, and then it shaped Paul's confidence in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. The gospel was Paul's confidence, his confidence in the world. If Paul did not preach the gospel, he would say, I have nothing to offer the world. What do we have to offer the world if we do not proclaim a resurrected Christ? 
What do we have to offer the world if we do not offer them Christ? But see, if Christ really did rise from the dead, if the gospel is true, then we have everything to offer the world. We are, in Christ, we are offering the world a relationship with God. We're telling them how they can come to know God, how they can be forgiven, how they can have their lives transformed. The problem is that proclaiming the gospel often gets you into trouble. This is the problem. This is the hesitation that probably many of you are feeling this morning as you think, okay, the gospel is good, it's really good news, but, but then there's this part of you that says, wait a second, if I tell even other Christians about Christ, and if I tell non-Christians about Christ, sometimes telling people about Christ gets you into trouble and we feel the shame. There's this shame that begins to well up in our hearts. We feel the pressure of the world, the pressure of the culture. And when we feel the pressure of shame, shame can either close your mouth. Isn't that what the first thing that happens? You close your mouth. You say, I'm not saying anything. I'm not saying anything about the Lord. I'm going to be quiet here. So shame, the potential for shame closes your mouth, but then it will open your mouth as well. It'll open your mouth. Do you remember what happened uh, with Peter when he was sitting around the fire and Jesus is, is on trial, being beaten? Do you remember what happens? There's, there's Jesus being beaten, condemned, wrongfully beaten and condemned. And then a little girl sitting around the campfire looks at Peter and says, you, weren't you with him? And what does Peter say? I do not know the man. And so he opens his mouth to distance himself from Christ in order to avoid shame, avoid rejection. And the same thing can happen in my life. Sometimes my mouth closes when I should open it. And sometimes I open my mouth when I should close it. This is what shame does. It's very powerful. Because we want to avoid shame at all. We want to avoid rejection. We want to avoid humiliation. And so the question we need to answer is, how can we follow Paul's example and not be ashamed of the gospel? So many of you, you love Christ and you feel the potential shame coming and you don't want to be ashamed. You, don't, you love Christ, and you don't want to be ashamed. And so how do we follow his example? Two steps. Number one, know the power of the gospel. This is where it starts. The, the confidence that we need is not in ourselves. It's not in you. It's in the gospel. He says, don't look at yourself. Don't look at yourself. Don't stir up courage within yourself to stand for Christ. Look at the gospel message. First Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why are you not ashamed, Paul? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. He says, I'm not ashamed because it is the power of God. Paul got into so much trouble because of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 11, five times I received 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. That is mind-blowing brutality. Five times I received 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers. Toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food cold and without clothing. All of it could have been avoided if he would have closed his mouth or changed his message. All of it. It cost Paul a lot. 
the number one strategy of the devil against you is to make you, when it comes to this whole topic of the gospel, is to make you feel ashamed of Christ. To make you feel ashamed of what Jesus says. You're stupid for believing Jesus. The world is right to think you're dumb for believing in Jesus. And so as Christians, we just need to be aware in our minds that shame is a powerful force. It is a powerful force. A very famous quote that is, it circulates all over the place is the quote, preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. Have you heard that before? Do you know who said that? Not Jesus. Uh, Jesus did not say that. <laughs> he did not say that. Uh, I agree with the sen- sentiment that it should come out of our lives. The gospel should come out of our lives, but the gospel is good news that Christians need to hear and non-Christians. Paul accepted the price of representing Christ. He, he, he just accepted it on the front end. He knew that the hatred that the world has for Jesus overflows to the people of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, we see that Paul knew that there would be no victory on the battlefield without suffering. There would be no crown at the end of the race without suffering. There would be no crop at the end of the harvest without suffering. And so Paul told Timothy, do not be ashamed of Christ. And I say to you, dear brothers and sisters, do not be ashamed of Christ. Do not be, we have no reason to be ashamed of him. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, for salvation to everyone who believes, not to everyone who tries, but to everyone who believes in the gospel message. Humanity learns how to be made right with God. Paul does not say we, sh- we are to be obnoxious or unloving. No, that's certainly not the case. But we are not to be ashamed. We are to stand with Christ, whatever happens to us. And so Paul knew the pain, the pain of suffering for Christ, and he also knew the power of the gospel. And when I think about power, the, the gospel being the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, I wish it was like this type of power, uh, if you want to put that picture up, power of an explosion. I, I wish the gospel was like that. It's like every time you shared the gospel, it was like this obvious manifestation of power, but that's not the way this works at all. A better picture is uh, this picture here, the power of the gospel. That's what we should think of. That's how we should think about the power of the gospel. And planting that seed is like the least exciting thing you can imagine. I mean, if you, if you garden, you go out, and what do you do? You take these seeds, and you till up the soil, and then you put the seeds in, and then you cover it up, and then it's over. And you're like, does that did that do anything? Is anything going to happen? Did that change anything at all? It's like it doesn't really feel like it. And that's because the power is in the seed. It's not in the sower. It's in the seed. It's not built on our power, but the power of the message of the gospel. So that that little seed that goes into the ground, it grows up. And this is one of my favorite uh, pictures to think about. It's this little, this not little. It's this tree where a little seed goes into the ground and then it grows up. This tree grows up, splitting this rock. And then eventually this, the tree is so strong it actually it splits this gigantic rock in half. That takes power. You know that big explosion? Probably couldn't split the rock. Probably wouldn't split the rock. But the seed working 
And doing what the seed does produces incredible power. And if you want to see the power of the gospel, look at someone's life who's been, who's been changed by, his, by the grace of God. Someone who's been walking with Christ for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. You will see the cascading effects of walking with Christ. Someone who's totally transformed. And so, brothers and sisters, we are, to, we are to put our hope not in ourselves, put our confidence not in ourselves, but in God and in his message. Point number two, we're out of time. <laughs> we'll pick it up next week. We need to see the love of God. That's the point. We need to see the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we want to stand with Christ and not be ashamed, but let's go ahead and close. Father in heaven, we thank